Hello, and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast, where in this episode we welcome Rune Spans, director of The Absence of Eddie Table. Howdy, everyone. Welcome to another Squiggly Animation Podcast. I'm Ben Mitchell, joined by Stephen Henderson. Steve, how's it going? It's going well, Ben. How are things with you? Tremendous. If you ignore the complete collapse of civilized society, <laughs> I'm having a whale of a time. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's all just hang in there. <laughs> Christ. What a what a way to start the show, Ben, with, with that downer. Sorry, I didn't mean to throw you. <laughs> no, it's just you throw me into a pit of depression. But don't be depressed, Steve. It's Oscar season. Glitz, glamour, <laughs> distraction. Look, shiny things. Yes, it is indeed. That time o' year when uh, uh, the Academy decrees which films are worth our time. How are you feeling about this year's Oscar nominations? I'm feeling uh, a little bit, well, I don't know, different on each one, really. I think there are certain ones where I'm glad to see uh, in the running... Uh, and others, I'm. Why the hell is that there? It's a roller coaster of emotions, but that's the Oscars for you. I feel when it comes to the animation calendar, Ben, we start the year, uh, as I say, in June with Annecy, uh, with so much promise and all these fantastic films that come out, and there's some absolutely gorgeous work on display there. And then half a year later, a little bit longer, we get to the Oscars where the films that we've seen throughout the year turn out to be completely worthless because <laughs> they're not American enough or, um, you know, they've not been promoted by certain people in America for long enough in the same theatres. And so it's, it's sort of depressing. Well, a little bit, I suppose. There is some good stuff in the, in the running. Don't get me wrong. Well, let's lead with what's really upsetting you. Get it out of the way. I'm a little bit disappointed that uh, Borrow Time has made it through to the uh, from the shortlist to an actual nomination because I mean as as great a film as it is it is a nice piece of filmmaking it's it's not really doing much else really is it there's no unique concepts in it yeah I mean we we spoke about it at some length uh, a few months ago mm. I can only say the same thing looks good done very well ultimately kind of forgettable. I've definitely seen far worse films mm-hmm. that have ridden on the coattails of, oh, they the were former Pixar employees, blah, 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 blah. Or even, indeed, have, I have seen far worse Pixar films. Mm-hmm. Well, that one with the volcanoes. <laughs> but then I've seen colonoscopy footage that was more entertaining than that one. So it's not a very high bar to beat. However, fair play to him. Certainly, there does seem to be a lot of sincere enthusiasm for it. Uh, even within our little squiggly community, yeah. So and that's vis- that's really visible. You can't deny that of the film that it is definitely blood, sweat, and tears gone into it. It is a you know nicely put together film, but it's just not producing enough for me to get excited about. Did you ever see the uh, pear cider and cigarettes? I didn't get round to watching the whole thing, no. Um, mm. But that looks like something a little bit different. I'm a fan of Robert Valley's style. Uh, I could look at his drawings all day long and not get bored. So seeing that in motion is something that I'm 
really looking forward to. And out of the short films and out of the feature films, it's the only one out of the whole list that I've not seen. Mm. Have you seen it yet? I have not. We're useless, aren't we? And that leaves Piper, which we spoke about and had the filmmakers on, as we did with uh, Patrick Osborne a, a mere one episode ago with his film Pearl. That leaves the one that I particularly liked, which was Blind Vaisha by Theodore Ushev. And that one may be the biggest underdog, perhaps. Mm. The thing is with Pearl is like with the VR film, that's quite progressive. And certainly we had a lot to say about the rather exciting direction that that's all going. Seeing Blind Vaisha, and I didn't actually see it stereoscopically until quite recently. Uh, I'd seen it at a couple of screenings that were just 2D. And what the NFB have managed to do quite consistently with their stereoscopic films is actually use stereoscopy in a way that's genuinely like, oh, what a great way to use that, as opposed to just make it seem far away. Mm. Or in your face, the worst crime of all. I've always found that the very sort of selective, thought-through nature of how stereoscopic production is taken on within the NFB it's very effective. I remember when they were kind of... It was the earlier days of it. Uh, there was a film called The End of Pinky by a woman, I believe, called Claire Blanchett, who... It was a film about... It was a sort of film noir, tiny micro short story set in Montreal. It's clearly quite a sort of nice sort of personal connection this director had with the story and the storyteller, who I think helped out a bit with the film. And the way they approached the stereoscopy and that they, it was kind of like these constructed sets floating in this like limbo, this very ethereal, smoky coffee and cigarettes and saxophones and, you know, that really early dawn of cinema gangland vibe, but like you're kind of floating along through it like it's a dream. And so as such, they become one of the few operations that can actually use 3D in a way that makes it more watchable. Mm. The issue is, like, with that film, if it's not in 3D, then it's not as watchable. I do find that Blind Vaisha remains as watchable in 2D, but the extra immersion and the extra kind of cleverness that the 3D processes bring to it, I think, really make it worth watching. The unfortunate thing is, once we get to a point where it's on YouTube or Vimeo, you know, it's going to be hard to replicate that theatrical uh, 3D. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can watch it on 3D and YouTube, I guess, and slide your phone into one of those little headset things. But it's not quite the same. What what kind of immersion do you get then on the big screen? How how does it work from a narrative point of view? Well, my issue mainly with like watching things on like a mobile device in 3D as opposed to a theatrical setting. A, you're looking at the screen before you're looking at the actual visual information. Like you're getting the grid of the screen in super up close definition and then beyond that is a film being played i find that a little distracting so obviously with the theater setting you don't get that that's been my main sort of resistance to the whole headset craze at the moment but with the actual immersiveness of seeing it like on a big screen in 3d because so much of it is told from pov you get a real sense of filling the character's shoes mm-hmm. in a way now i had thought because i hadn't seen it in 3D for the first few times I saw it, I was a little cautious because I thought that maybe what they would do is actually present it to you as though you're the girl. The premise, if you don't know the film, it's a girl called Vaisha. Her left eye sees the past and her right eye sees the future or possibly the other way around. 
but basically, you know, uh, every time she opens her eyes, she's looking at two versions of reality, but not what's actually right in front of her. So if a suitor approaches her and wants to take her out on a date, in one eye she'll see a little boy, and in another eye she'll see a decrepit old man. And, you know, she can't really do much with either. So she lives her life in this very frustrated way. What you could do using stereoscopy is actually present that to the audience, like one eye is seeing one image and the other eye is seeing the other image. And that would really f*** with your head. Right. <laughs> like that would be a really kind of hard watch. And I was almost, because I had known the premise for a while, I was always almost worried that they were going to do that. They did go with something that would be considered more conventional in the sense that you're looking at the same canvas. You're looking at the same film image but it is you know with depth added to it but it works so gorgeously with his sculpted lino cut style Mm. the layers to that are just magnificent you almost want to you know be able to reach out and touch it so yeah it's rare that i kind of go off on the cosmetic value of a film so much i do love the story as well and the music is great and theo ushev is someone that we've had on a few times i've been i mean he does political sincere stoic abstract filmmaking and you'll watch it and you won't want to cut out your eyes Mm. as 90 percent of people who make that kind of film you know that's usually the effect he makes these films and it really does make you think and it makes you think about the art and the derivations and the influence and how he's able to apply these you know very painterly techniques to moving image i find like his you know when you can read a few of the interviews we have with him he he, he's not around he's taking it very seriously I imagine he's finding the current climate, A, probably quite uh, harrowing, but also there's probably quite a lot of food for future work mm. or current work. I, I really I really hope that people do embrace this sort of modern political era and respond to it in that way. It, it just, it's just something that needs to happen, isn't it? Well, it would be wonderful if he were to win an Oscar now. Mm. You know, I mean, it would, in general, it'd be great if he won an Oscar, but it would it would feel good if he won an Oscar next month, considering what's going on in the world. Whereas, you know, Piper, perfectly charming film. It would be a fool's errand to try and find fault with it. But is it saying anything like lasting or with weight? Actually, I mean, and Blind Vice isn't even really a political film. It's uh, adapted from a story, but it's a more satisfying type of story, personally. Mm. There's a lot more meat to it. When you're looking at um, Theodore's work... Uh, Glory of Victoria is one that stands out for me. The way that he really, like you say, these films can be headaches when they're in the wrong hands, when people are trying to do something abstract and there's no connection with the audience. But seeing Glory of Victoria a few years ago, I was just blown away. I was like, that's incredible. Uh, Piper, you just said, is is there much to Piper? I think to its credit, it is a piece of work... uh, uh, a splendid work of caricature, but yeah, I would uh, I would definitely put uh, Blind Fisher above uh, above Piper. Um, very sorry, Alan, but uh, you know I've got to be true to the podcast listeners. Let's go to the polls, shall we? Mm. We've been asking the squiggly readers to vote for who should win um, animated short film. And uh, with 35%, in fact, no, I'll do it in reverse to add a little bit of suspense, Ben. How about that then, yeah? Mm. Yeah. Pearl, with 5% of the votes, which is a little bit unusual. Um, 
I, I would have thought that would get more. I mean, we've been the first uh, VR uh, short to be uh, in the running for a uh, an Oscar. Then with 15%, it's uh, it's Piper. Again with 15%, Pear Cider and Cigarettes. Uh, Blind Vaisha has 30%. And right at the very top, with 35% of the votes, Borrow Time. Tremendous. What did you vote for, Ben? I'll vote now. Hang on. There you go. I just voted for Vaisha. So now, Vaisha and Borrowed Time are tied. Now it's a bit more neck and neck. Oh, we'll have to re-record this podcast. Well, it's probably going to be different by the time it goes out. But whatever the results are, cast your vote over on Squiggly. But wait, there's more. More? Two other categories, in fact. There's VFX, do not give a shit. Whoa! And animated feature. Whoa, 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 Cuba and the Two Strings has gone into the VFX category. I suppose it is quite rare for an... I mean, yeah, what was the last one? Nightmare? Yeah. So that was, what, 20 years ago? 22 years ago? Yeah, it's nice to have that rewarded, in at least with a nomination. Acknowledged, should I say, with a nomination. Good for them. <laughs> Hopefully they'll go home with at least one. Maybe they'll go home with both. Are there any of the animated feature category that you find upsetting, that you feel shouldn't belong? I don't know about upsetting. I'll say this for the uh, animated feature category. It's nice. It's very nice to see the Red Turtle. It's very nice to see My Life as a Courgette uh, in there as well. And it appears that the uh, feature category has done something that the shorts category usually does, and that is include some actual foreign animation in this very American competition. Uh, so it's interesting to see my life as a courgette in there and uh, the red turtle. Hmm. Disney are really uh, edging the bets there with uh, Moana and uh, Zootopia in the running and uh, Cooper and the Two Strings. I saw Moana recently as well. I've been playing catch up with my films. It's not a bad film. On par with uh, Zootopia, I would say. So maybe joint last place for me, which means they'll win. One of them will win. Mm-hmm. Because the Oscars hate me, Ben. It's personal. So what do our squiggly readers think should win? Da, 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 da. Uh, at the time of recording, it is my life as a courgette. Coming in first, followed by the others. Um, <laughs> Just the others. Kubo, Red Turtle, and then, yeah. Uh, also, consistent with your own um, take on it, Zootropolis and Moana. Bringing up the rear. We'll see. They'll have the last laugh yet, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Or will they? Maybe. And Life Animated in the documentary category. That was the one about the, the kid who's really into Disney, right? Yeah, the uh, kid with autism that uses Disney as a sort of outlet, which is nice. I remember that got a lo- lot of good reviews. When it was doing the old art house mm-hmm. cinema rounds a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. <laughs> he says yawning. Thank you very much for indulging... The Oscars, once again, Ben. You've done this five years now, and you're getting better and better every year. Well, you were the one who, who began the conversation saying that it doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't, but it's, it took me years to get that, and and now I get it. It's, yeah, it's, you know, it's all a publicity thing, isn't it? It's not really, you know, follow your heart, squiggly listeners. It's your favourite film is the best film. There you go. And on a positive note. I'm teary-eyed over here. <laughs> what else has been happening in the world of animation, Ben? Um, bits and bobs. NFB have some stuff that's up. A little series of micro shorts. They look good. We're going to put up some stuff about those soon, uh, including Oscar nominee Theodore Ushev, 
has a sort of repurposed version of his film Blood Manifesto. That's the other reason why he doesn't f*** around. He literally makes films in his blood. <laughs> how how did he make films with blood? He, he took out his blood and like painted with it. He, uh, yeah, the, the taking out the blood is what I I'm interested in. The, that sort of well, I mean what? Well, in the um, in the film uh, in the blood in the original Blood Manifesto film, it opens with a pixelation animation of him slashing his hand. And that's how he gets the blood out. I think it was a little more clinical in real life. I am fairly certain when I spoke to him about it, he he went, here's what he said. The film was animated with my own blood. I tried different kinds of blood initially. Then in parentheses, let the rumors start here. In the final cut, there are still some parts from this initial experiment with different bloods. Then as the text became more and more personal, I decided that it had to be my own blood. The opening shot shows my first attempt to slightly scratch my hand and get some samples. Then I got the idea of using laboratory. I donated some blood. My sister and a laboratory technician helped me with this. And I took some conserved blood, 50 milliliters to be exact. Um, since I used it for drawing on small pieces of paper, I only used 25. Ah, he's frugal with his blood. <laughs> the most difficult part was getting a contraband bio-based product through customs. If the officers caught me, I could be in real trouble. I can just imagine the conversations and reactions there. There you go. It's, uh, that's a dedication for you. It certainly is. So there's that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, many other filmmakers uh, are involved in that. It's a series called Naked Island. And keep your eyes on Squiggly. We'll be hearing from some of the filmmakers involved in that. Mr. Medea went up. Mm-hmm. It was a film that uh, I think we're both very fond of. Oh, elsewhere, our friend Sidney Bauman is trying to get another animated feature underway, and we'll be talking about that when Intimate Animation returns, which will mm. be soon, hopefully. Always a, always a laugh, and she has a very entertaining Kickstarter video, which i got to say, it's always nice when people actually put the effort into that. Yeah. Because so many of these campaigns that you know we come across, and the videos are just like... Yeah. This one is the Sydney we all know and love. And also, she did a campaign a few years back when we had her on initially, I guess four years ago now. But she made the film, and it did really well. Like, she's proved that she's up to the task, certainly. So it's a, it's a good horse to back. Clement Ferrand is just around the corner. I believe it is kicking off this very week, uh, February 3rd. Clement Ferrand, it's a pretty big festival. They played one of my films back in the day, completely circumstantially, which was uh, nice. It's always nice when you can kind of sneak in. Also, here's a little fun fact. Uh, they accepted Clemen Throw last year for 20 minutes. And then they sent another email saying, actually, it didn't get in. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> True story. Give with one hand, take away with the other. As a festival director, well, I imagine this is probably like a festival like organizer's nightmare is the accidental sending of people who didn't get into a <gasps> festival an email that they did. Oh, they sent it out to, like, 20 people, and I I thought it was funny, but if I hadn't gotten a film in there before, I probably would have been pissed off. I imagine it was an awful day for them. Wow. <laughs> Fielding angry emails. It's a stressful job. I mean, it's, it all comes down to just clicking the wrong button, I guess. Yeah. Or at the wrong time. <laughs> but generally speaking, I believe it is a, a, a tightly run ship and a very prestigious festival to get into. Certainly when uh, House Guest got in, my old student film... It proved very beneficial, <laughs> this is going to show my age, to DVD sales. Mm. <laughs> All 50 copies I'd had pr- printed of uh, the film actually um, 
pretty much sold all of them from playing at Clement Farron. So that was, you know, that was a nice uh, little boost. One of the films amongst the animations at this year's Clement Farrant is a film that uh, played at Ottawa recently, and uh, Andy Jewell caught it over there, one of our correspondents, and he had very positive things to say about it. Uh, we had the composer for the film, John Carter, in the Animation Compose special, the music and animations podcast we put up in December. It's called The Absence of Eddie Table. It's by Rune Spans. And it is a complete nightmare clusterfuck, wonderful, in the same kind of like, it scratches all the itches that Robert Morgan and Rosto and all these, you know, animation psychopaths scratch for me. I'm glad the word wonderful eventually popped up there. Are you familiar with much of Dave Cooper's work? Uh, Not especially, no. He's a good one to check out. I recommended him uh, in the other podcast, but definitely uh, worth checking out his work. He does stuff for kids and also stuff for... um, well, stuff that f- definitely not for kids. And uh, I would say that this film definitely kind of falls into the latter category. Mm. There are a couple of graphic novels he's done. He did a sort of uh, trilogy, I would say, but they're not really connected stories uh, of graphic novels. One's called Suckle. The other one's called Crumple. And the third one, which I actually have yet to read, I think is called Weasel or Ripple. No, Ripple. So the first two of these, basically they're these kind of contained adventures of these unfortunate characters wandering through these very hallucinogenic, very, very libidinous environments. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of adolescent mindscape laid out in uh, some wonderful, wonderful ink drawings. With this film, it's instead very lavish, very photorealistic, but also very uh, considered and stylized CG. And that's um, something that Rune kind of took the reins on there. It's just f***ing batshit. I love it. <laughs> Have you seen much of this, like trailers or anything? Yeah, I've seen the trailer. It is... Uh, uh, I, I struggle to find the words, Ben. I'll, you've used all the swear words. I don't know how I would best describe this. Hmm. It looks mesmerizing. I think it's good to kind of like let it take you along with it. Mm-hmm. Actually, let's see what Andy had to say. So this is from Andy Jules write-up of Ottawa. One of the stronger contenders include the Norwegian film The Absence of Eddie Table, which picked up the richly deserved Best Design Award. This has to be my new favourite film of the year, without a doubt. This is War of the Worlds meets Alien. Never before have I watched an animated short and had the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. I'd say that's all very reasonable <laughs> in its description. Uh, if anything, he's holding back. But yeah, great fun. So uh, hopefully the world at large will be able to see it soon. In the meantime, you'll be able to catch it at Clement Ferrand if you happen to be uh, over there this year. It's definitely on. Yeah, I think so. They put it on the website, so right. <laughs> I think they kind of have to at that point. Now, Rune Spans, as people will have gleaned already, he's from Norway. He's worked on a bunch of quite high-profile things over in Norway. One of the favorites, I would say, he worked on a film called Troll Hunter. Uh, which isn't the DreamWorks series, the Guillermo del Toro thing. It, this was a Norwegian indie film. Did you see this? Troll! Uh-huh. That's me saying yes. Yep, I have seen it. It is uh, fun. It's an odd one. So obviously he was uh, animator on that. Yeah, he was an animator on one of the sort of crucial scenes. Um, it was kind of shepherded out to a whole bunch of different VFX people and teams in Norway. He worked on one of the more memorable scenes that takes place on a bridge, which is, you know, 
to be expected in a film about trolls. Mm-hmm. So yeah, get, looking through its sort of filmography, that was the one that kind of stood out to me. But check out his website at superrune.com, and there's lots of really wonderful things uh, he worked on then. He also, like, sort of way back in the day, was involved in one of the John Curder music videos, which I think we'll talk about later on. So yeah, that's pretty much all. Great film. It's playing soon. It's been playing around the world. People seem to dig it. I dig it a lot. Shall we hear from Rune Spans? Let's indeed. Beautiful. I gather then, looking at your site, you started doing uh, graphics on the Commodore 64. Yeah, that's true. How was that as a learning experience? Well, you learn patience from it. Patience. (laughs) 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 By doing images pixel by pixel with a joystick, you learn patience. So I guess that was a good thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. Also, uh, I had this wonderful feeling of doing stuff nobody else was doing you you felt like a little bit of a pioneer even though i didn't have a clue computer graphics was going to be such a big thing there was something cool about doing images on the computer and i knew nobody else who did it and i yeah it was a great thing to do hmm. so did you find generally speaking that impulse of sort of teaching yourself and using your own initiative, is that what kind of followed you throughout your life, or did you yeah, formally study at any point? Definitely. I, I, I have no education in animation mm-hmm. or film. Um, I've just been learning stuff by myself for over 20 years now, and it's still the way I do it. I really like just following most of my impulses and do stuff because I think it looks fun. I mean, did you find it quite easy then to get work in that field? Uh, once you'd sort of amassed a portfolio or did you find that being self-taught I don't over there do people like value like having a formal kind of education on the CV or is it more about the quality of the work would you say I find in animation that people have never bothered with what education you have when I started working here um, working in animation first with video games I don't think anybody looked at your grades at all or what your education was as long as you had a nice portfolio and it's it's been the same with me when I've been hiring people as well. I I sometimes go to specific schools to get the list of students they have, but mostly I just look at their portfolios and and meet them personally, of course, to get to know them. And that's that's the way I, I like to do it. Yeah. And so in the more recent years, you've been kind of strictly self-employed. Yeah. Has, did anything in particular motivate that decision? Do you prefer working for yourself, essentially? Yeah, I, I, I never liked having a boss. I never liked having people tell me what to do. And I really like to um, have days where I don't work that much, where I, where I um, do research or where I just relax a bit. Because when I really get into work, I tend to obsess a bit about it and probably work too much. Hmm. But that's the way I, I I like to do it. So I feel I'm now that I'm working. I'm I'm sitting now in my home office with my with my girlfriend, and I, uh, and it's so much more relaxing to me having somebody watch over my shoulder and wonder what I'm doing constantly. Hmm. So uh, so going through your work, and I had uh, I hadn't clocked this until I spoke with John uh, a couple of months ago. But uh, one thing that you'd worked on I'd seen quite a long time ago it was one of his music videos. Yeah, that's true. And so was that was that an earlier sort of like commission thing or was that 
I wasn't quite clear on like what level of involvement you had, whether you were directing or whether you were part of the crew. Yeah, that was one of my first post-production jobs uh, when I started working in post-production. I, I, I did post-production at, at one of the major um, post-production houses and design houses in Oslo in the, in the early 2000s. And that was one of the first major jobs. I actually think it was my second job ever at that company. Uh, and I was the lead 3D artist on that and, and the VFX supervisor. So so we had a small team of 3D artists and it was directed by a live action director uh, from, a, from the, another production company. That's where I also uh, learned about Kola's music and get got to know him and, and started emailing with him back and forth a bit for some years talking about the music video to do a, a completely an animated music video actually which we never did unfortunately but but i'm returning the favor now in a way <laughs> <laughs> we're also doing in some times this january uh, we'll be releasing a music video as well which is edited with some images from the short film but also around a minute of new animation too oh brilliant oh that sounds cool yeah so do you follow his music in general then? You you consider yourself a fan? Yeah, I, I consider myself a big fan of his music. I really, uh, especially the last album with Koda and Takma, I think is a wonderful album to, to listen to. Yeah, I've been, uh, I think it's probably one of my favorites of this year. Yeah. Another thing that you were involved in that uh, we actually watched here quite recently that uh, I like a lot, uh, Troll Hunter. Oh, yeah. Which, um, <laughs> Got, I think, a sort of limited release here in some of the art house cinemas, but I, I think that's uh, great fun. Uh, how'd you get the gig for that? Well, it's a very, very small animation and post-production community here in Norway. So so when that script started going the circuits and, and going through the post-production companies for bidding, uh, I was one of the people they got in touch with. And I got the entire script and was asked if there was anything they thought I could do in the film possible for me to do a couple of smaller shots so i i've always wanted to do a, a realistic character for a feature film so i i asked if i could be responsible for the ringle finch sequence with a troll on the bridge which being an animated did all, uh, completely by our own just just the two of us so it was uh, very very fortunate to to have such a film being made in norway i usually get a lot of opportunity to, to bid on, on feature films and for VFX, because that's a big part of my background. So most film projects end up on my table anyway. <laughs> but that was one of the really, really great ones. It's it's so rare to, especially here in Norway, to, to be on a, uh, on a VFX job that has some size. And it's even rarer for the film to be good and and also for it to be successful so that was uh one of my favorite projects uh, to have done and also the work being fun of course mm. i do remember around the, the time it came out it was sort of around the time the one of the new planet of the apes movies had come out and i remember it really struck me how the way that the trolls were composited into the film was actually a it was sort of better because of the way the whole film was kind of degraded to make it look like found footage. And oh, yeah, yeah. The, the issue with the big Hollywood films is that the CG now is more realistic. Like it's more detailed almost yeah. than the live action. But everything, there was a really great balance, I thought, of, of the CG characters and the live action with Trollhunter. And it must be a very, very hard balance to get right. But uh, 
Yeah, I, I really love the direct mentality on that job because he, of course, he had most of it had to be um, obscure in a way because of budget. It had mm. to be you have to think like like they did in the first Alien film to, to hide it more than show it. Mm. But also, he the director really wanted it to feel random and and not so much uh, hair you know, look at this VFX and so like presenting it to you. It's it was a great concept, really great concept for a film, and it's just everything just fit together in terms of the way his, his sort of philosophy of doing it, and and also just the thinking behind the creatures, how uh, they've never been portrayed that way in Norway, at least as with such realism. Mm. So this was someone he had. Uh, there was a lot of cool ideas behind the film. As far as directing goes, is the absence of Eddie Table? Is this your first short film? Yes, my first short film. Mm-hmm. It's something I've been trying to do for ever since I started working professionally. It's, it's been a long, long dream of mine to do uh, animated short because I'm I'm such a fan of animated shorts in general, and and I watch so many of them. So I felt I I started the wrong way around when I got asked to do to direct a feature film uh, some years ago, and and I've having done two. Uh, children's feature films before this always felt to me <laughs> the wrong way around. The, were the both the features for younger audiences? Yeah, yeah. They were uh, the first one was was for preschoolers, and the second one was for a family audience, but with uh, younger kids. Right, not true. So yeah, this one very much not for kids, and coming from the mind of Dave Cooper, uh, especially. Although I do find that he can do stuff for kids as well, quite. I think that's the again with me. Uh, I, all, I I I hate repeating myself, and I, I'm always and I have this huge checklist of stuff I want to do. And and there's children's projects and adult projects. There's a little bit of everything. I I, I uh, yeah. Now, did you and Dave know each other at all before this film came about? We emailed a couple of years, just uh, not much though. Uh, I emailed him many many years ago. Um, Asking if if he'd be interested in collaborating on an animation project, uh, and that was probably six or seven years ago now. And we emailed a bit back and forth, and then I I, I uh, read he was going to Oslo for a comic uh, festival, comic book festival. Then we we agreed to meet and 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 hit it off pretty good. I think we had have a lot of common in our taste in film, for example. So we. Talked a bit further when we met, and then uh, I decided to just try and get a producer and see if we can try and fund something. And then we didn't have a script or anything. We just had this idea about doing something that was dreamlike and a bit uh, non-narrative, actually, and and based off of his paintings. Mm. When we got a producer, he, um, we uh, Dave mentioned he had a script line uh, with Eddie Table. Uh, which uh, which was the one we applied for funding for in, uh, here in Norway. So, yeah, I have a, a few of his books, but nothing that has this character. Had it existed in any other form before the film? I don't think so. I don't think so. He's, um, he's, he, he was one of Dave's most popular... Uh, I mean, uh, it's, I don't think he's existed in, in um, moving form. He's, he's, he was one of uh, Dave's uh, more popular comic book characters. He was in a series of comic books uh, called... Uh, what was his name again? 
And it was like a serial in another more adult comic he did. Weasel, maybe? Weasel, yeah, it was probably Weasel. I got it, I got it in my, my, my library here, but I can't find it now. And, and, uh, and for some reason, he, um, the, that character, uh, I, I think, must have been pretty popular because they also did a vinyl toy out of it in the 90s, the late 90s, which I also have on my shelf. Didn't realize that actually until a little bit after I talked to Dave. I didn't know the character myself actually uh, when I started talking to Dave because I was I discovered Dave through through his paintings, uh, to the two books of paintings that have been released. So you hadn't read the graphic novels at that point? No, I haven't. I was a huge fan of his paintings, and I I, I just loved the, the the quality of light, uh, how he kicked. Uh, um, both the background and the, and, and, and the characters and also the themes he had in his paintings uh, with, with mm-hmm. all these uh, mysterious girls in, in, uh, in the forest and, and the parasites. I found that very, very intriguing. So that was something I, I, I really wanted to see uh, adapted into 3D and, and see, see a story around. How ultimately did uh, you develop the look of the film? Because that sort of gloss of the CG, it's quite different from the painting style. Was that mainly your decision? Or? Yeah, yeah. That was, mm. that was a lot of... Yeah, yeah it, um, Dave um, talked for, for a little bit. He talked about if there's a way we could do the film, uh, render it in a way that it looked like 2D with, with line uh, drawings, etc. But... But um, my my medium is 3D, and, and I, I I do a lot of uh, not always photoreal, but still um, realistic looking 3D with with light and shadows and so on. That that's that's what I do. So and and that was my my uh, the thing I wanted to do as well when I saw his paintings. I really wanted to see this adapted into a 3D space because I I I, I had a feeling it would it would uh, the end result would be unlike anything I've seen in animation. Mm. But it was a long proce- process. It was really, really hard. Uh, both uh, adapting the style itself in terms of the silhouettes and the shapes, but also the, the, just the sheer amount of detail uh, in his paintings. Uh, every single pixel on screen almost is, is, is filled with some kind of detail. There's not a single flat (laughs) surface almost, (laughs) which is very heavy both computationally and also just in terms of uh, the uh, man hours you have to put in building these sets. Well, the lighting as well is is very complex. That was also something we just just really analyzed his paintings and see how he uh, lit uh, his environment in his paintings and trying to to uh, to yeah uh, 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 do something similar in in 3D uh, so and we lit it pretty much like a, a very similar to to I think um, how you would like a stop motion movie a puppet movie mm-hmm. yeah with a lot of of, uh, of spots coming from different directions and not just uh, not doing it realistically or trying to imitate uh, real life lighting but doing it very very uh, it's very hand uh, hands-on. Every shot was lit by itself to have that have this specific look. Yeah, a lot of work. <laughs> 
So, uh, so when you essentially was it pitched for funding essentially, or was it? Uh, I'm, I'm sort of curious about what the the process is over there for getting finances for short film projects like this. Yeah, we have great national funding for films uh, and also for short films, where you can get eighty percent of the budget funded by by the government or by the Norwegian Film Institute. And what you do is that you you prepare like you prepare both a um, uh, like a director's vision, uh, like a creative pitch, and then we also do uh, you do a, a budget and 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 and, um, and set up uh, how uh, how the production is gonna is gonna be handled, and then you go to the uh, to the uh, what's called uh, the short film consultant, which which is uh, which is one person that that alternates every every second year and, and uh, in our case she will she really loved the project she 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 uh, she really really loved the project and and we got funded just a couple of weeks after submitting the uh, oh, the um, uh, application i guess you call it mm-hmm. and, and that's the way it's been all the way it's, it's it's been such a grateful project because everybody we asked about helping us or working for us they all just accepted it it's it's been a uh, it's been really been easy to do, <laughs> in a way. That's really nice to hear, especially as it's not a very mainstream idea that they're willing to sort of put money into something that's kind of more artistic and independent and abstract. It's yeah. nice to see. And they're really quite strict uh, with that here in Norway. It has to be justified artistically. They really want something with a unique voice or, that's, or, or, or a new, new story. I mean, I found it's definitely been a discussion point. Having done the rounds at some festivals, we had a, a, one of our writers went over and saw it in Ottawa. Um, yeah. I definitely got tongues wagging, which is a nice thing as well. Yeah. So yeah, going um, back, I was when I mentioned I was talking to John about the music and he was talking about, you know, what a valuable exercise it was in kind of pulling things back and letting a film take the lead, essentially. Uh, but I'd be interested in hearing from your perspective what it was like working with him to do the music for the film. Oh yeah, uh, it was just a really pleasant process. Really, it's uh, very early on, even before we had uh, anything animated. He he did some sound sketches, some music sketches, which we which we which would, that I could use when I was editing the film. So he was on pretty early on, just. Uh, sending ideas that we tried played around with, uh, and mm. in, uh, actually influenced a lot of the tempo, I would say, of the film. Mm. And and also, uh, I always like working from music anyway. So every time he would update the soundtrack, I would go in and and uh, I tweaked edit so that it matched the music, and not try to do it the other way around. Uh, no, it was just a really. I, unfortunately, I, I didn't get to sit with him as much as I would have liked because I was. Uh, after we had done the main production phase, after we had done the animation, I had to do that film on my spare time because I was directing one of the children's features. Mm-hmm. So it was two years I was just sitting and um, uh, working in the evenings trying to get the sh- uh, short film finished, me and my Swedish supervisor. So I wish I could have, have spent more time with him, but the soundtrack, I'm sure I didn't need to because the soundtrack is just... Uh, just so perfect anyway so very happy with how, how how the music turned out was it john's idea to bring mike Patton on board i don't remember whose idea it was first 
I think first, it probably just came up jokingly in, in one of the conversations we had that wouldn't it be, it be cool if we got him involved because he was just starting the new album when we were doing the short and, and he had a lot of talks with Patton at that time. So I, I'm, it might have been my producer as well who just, who just suggested that uh, because I think uh, I, I didn't know that he also did voices for video games. Mm-hmm. So, so once I, I knew that, uh, then I, the idea stuck a bit in my head. <laughs> But it took but it took two years before we had the courage to, to email him. <laughs> it was just it was just too out there. <laughs> so um, we had a hard time coming up with a voice for Eddie anyway. Mm. And we also wanted somebody who could try stuff with both the parasites and the monster girls. He was such a logical choice when we just started thinking about it. So I was uh, it was. Uh, an amazing thing that he, he was able to do it and happy to do it as well. He was, he, he really liked the project. Yeah, he definitely has a gift for tapping into that sort of demon in us. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of hard sometimes to sort of fathom where it comes from in his throat. Yeah. Watching it through, I'm pretty sure I could sort of discern when it was him coming through on the soundtrack. Yeah. But yeah, some of them really are quite inhuman. It's quite impressive. Yeah. Um, his voice is just insane it's mm. incredible that somebody can but it's, it's and also I have to say that with Ingrid as well mm. we have two other actors as well Ingrid and, and Ingrid and Ingrid uh, who did the voice of Snip the, the little monster girl she also did an amazing job uh, with all the sounds that she makes and, and, mm. and I, I, sp- I spent a lot of time with her just uh, with her just playing around and finding the characters so so uh, which is also uh, such a great process uh, working with her uh, mm. long before the animation was done just trying to figure out how Snip talked and, and the sounds she make and she's quite an uh, established actress over there isn't she yeah she is she's uh, one of the more well-known Norwegian actresses and she's also done a lot of uh, acting now in uh, outside of Norway one of the last things she done, she did was in the, the HBO series Westworld, uh-huh. where she was yeah. a character called Armistice, uh-huh. the, the the female outlaw. Uh, and how did she find like when? How did you approach her? I guess was that through the production company, or did she audition? Or no, it's such a small <laughs> community here. You know, she she was a friend of the producers. They had they have a band together where she's the. She's the lead singer. Ah, okay. So my, my producer plays the 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 bass in addition to the producer. <laughs> so so uh, and and um, and uh, she was uh, one of the first choices we had you know, for, for for acting in the film. And so he just asked her, and then she and she, uh, she really fell for the project and and uh, Dave's artwork. I think actually she knew the artwork from before uh, mm. also. So we, and then we spent a lot of time. We spent several days in in, uh, in recording sessions with her, uh, both for Snip and also for one of the on one of the big girls and that also that she also plays. Yeah, no, they they were brilliant. The ladies. Are you guys going to be sort of focusing on festivals for a while longer, or is there another sort of distribution plan of action taking effect? We're probably going to stay on the festival circuit at least until summer. Mm-hmm. And after that, I'm I'm not quite sure what we're going to do with it. Uh, to be honest, we uh, we haven't talked that much about it. We have a 
a distribution deal with a French distributor, but that's only in, in, in France, uh, which I think also ends now in, in, in summer or fall. Mm. And after that, uh, we'll, I will, we'll have to see. Uh, either we'll just put it out online or we'll try and, and maybe try and sell a couple of copies either through VOD or, or physical. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I know Dave wants to do something with the film in terms of having it accompany uh, a new comic with uh, with Eddie mm. because he's he's writing the story that ties into the short. So that's one of the things we were looking at. But people will, will see a, a great chunk of the film when we release the music video mm, for Call the Pattern uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I like the idea also of it being a package uh, with a Dave comic. I think that would be fun too. Yeah, yeah. I really want to... I'm. I'm also very curious uh, about learning uh, more about these characters before they enter the forest. Uh, I didn't want to know anything about it before I did the film because I, I wanted this to. Uh, I wanted the film to be uh, totally standalone, uh, so that it made sense even if you didn't know his work or or Eddie. But now that it's done, I'm starting to think uh, more about how he ended up in this forest and the rest of the characters, of course, as well. And so the absence of any table will screen over the next couple of weeks as part of the international competition at the prestigious Claremont Ferron Film Festival. It's in the I-9 screening that will play every day from this Saturday, February 4th, until the following Saturday, the 11th. That's eight screenings in all at a variety of times and venues. So the best way to learn more is to check out claremont-filmfest.com. And you can learn more about the work of Rune Spans at superrune.com. He's also on Twitter at superrune. And while you're following folks on Twitter, left, right, and center, you might want to follow me at Ben L. Mitchell. And Steve is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. Squish us together and you get the sticky animation y compote that is at Squiggly. Also, facebook.com slash squiggly magazine at squiggly animation on Instagram and keep visiting squiggly.com for all our news, reviews, interviews, and other good stuff. We're skedaddling for now, but fret not, plenty more podcasts are headed your way. Until then, happy animating.